0: When David asked me, or or kind of said we've scheduled you in for the the next couple of weeks, he kind of gave me the option to speak on whatever I wanted, and I just had brain freeze. Like you heard the term, like analysis paralysis. It's where you've got so many options that just everything seems right and everything seems wrong all at the same time. This is where I've been living for like the last two weeks of just thinking, what do I talk about? What do I? Where do I want to go? I read through this huge chunk of the epistles because I thought, oh yeah, a letter from Paul—that'll be great—and um, again, just lots of lots of good stuff, but but really struggling to figure out um, what God wanted to say or or what He was putting on my heart. Rachel was very good in encouraging me through this. She said, "Find find the thing that speaks to you, um, and then work from there." So that's what I've done. I've kind of found a passage that um, that I think just is fantastic, and I hope I hope you will too. Um, I'm going go to go into Colossians. Um, we're going to start at chapter one next week. We'll have a look at chapter two and three, um, and it's a it's a fantastic it's a fantastic letter. We won't have time, kind of in two weeks, or I I don't have the skill in two weeks to kind of cover the whole thing. Um, there's there's a lot of really good stuff in there. We're going to look at just seven verses, basically from 15. Um, to 23. That is 7, right? Maybe that's 8. We're going to look at 8 verses, um, 15 to 23. And uh, just in this little block even, it's super dense. There's heaps of stuff being said about who Christ is and who we are in Him and all this sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, one of the things that's probably good to get your head around whenever you're Looking at a book of the Bible and and especially a letter is you know when, when was it written why was it written who was it written to um, and who was it written by obviously um, Colossians is written by Paul or, or you know they're ninety percent sure it's written by Paul um, to a church in the city of Colosse I guess it said Colosse A E A sort of sound Colosse um, and this this church they're relatively Young, uh, they're Gentiles, um, and Paul's never met them before. So he's writing this letter, but he hasn't actually met them before, which I think is really interesting. His uh, co-worker, Epiphras, um, planted the church. He went to Colossae and kind of spread the gospel and founded this church. Then he met Paul and shared with him, oh, this is what I've been doing, this is where I've been. And Paul says, ever since I heard about you, so ever since Epiphras told him about the church he's they 've been praying for them, so he 's really taken on this um parental concern for this church it's not not his his child, so to speak, but his um concern for them and his love for them is is born out of i think his um his call his personal call as uh the apostle to the gentiles so um that 's really put on his heart a concern for the church, and uh he's just prays for them constantly, apparently, um, which I think is great. Um, and I guess the reason he's writing is because uh, something Epiphras has told him or something he's heard has made him think, oh, there's a bit of a threat to the church. You know, sometimes Paul's, Paul writes letters because he wants to encourage the church. Sometimes he writes them because he wants to tell them off, you know, you've been doing the wrong thing, let me tell you the right thing. Um, but this time it, it's more of a warning. Um, And we kind of have to infer what that warning's about. He doesn't out and out say, you know, Gnostics are the problem or pagans are the problem or Jews are the problem. He kind of just touches on a bunch of stuff in chapter 2 and some of it sounds Jewish, you know, the Sabbath and circumcision. Some of it sounds pagan, like the worship of angels and the new moon festival and this sort of thing. And he's just kind of touching on them all. So we kind of, we can look at history and we can say... Roman city, small to medium size, probably had, almost certainly had a synagogue, almost certainly had um, pagan temples. So presumably some sort of combination of these these other religions and these other, oh and he also warns against high-sounding philosophy. So maybe there's a big group of Greeks there who are right into their philosophy. And uh, somewhere along the line, this combination of things, he's gotten concerned that the church is losing sight of the gospel and losing sight of Christ. And and more than just losing sight of it, they're starting to import these other beliefs that make them right with God. So, so somewhere on the line they've gotten this idea that, oh, we've got Christ and the Sabbath or Christ and circumcision, Christ and Epicureanism, I don't know, some sort of philosophy, you know, it's Christ and. And Paul's like, no, you've got to hold firm. You've got to stick with what you've been taught. Hang on to it. Um, so that's kind of the setting. Now we're going to see if this thing works. Do I have to do something? No. I've got to wait. See, this is a lesson in patience. <laughs> it's not you, it's me. That's what he's just said to me. Um, that's all right. I can read from here. All, all that's going to come up is the verses. So you can always just follow along in your Bible anyway. Um, so Colossians one fifteen to 23. That's where we'll pick up. And it's great. It says, "...the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities." Shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Dense, isn't it? For eight verses, there's just heaps there. There's this massive list of who Christ is and then a little encapsulation of the gospel. And the reason I wanted to kind of grab this seven verses, is eight, eight verses, I'm going to keep doing that, um, is because this is simultaneously both the summary of everything that Paul writes in Colossians and it's the foundation ultimately you can, you can track back any of the teaching that he gives to this, this stuff supremacy of Christ Christ is above all better than everything more powerful than anyone he's just supreme uh, and then this we, we were once enemies of God but we've been reconciled through Christ and these two things this is where everything draws back to and I, I reckon that's pretty good stuff for us as well. That's really where we want to keep drawing back to in our lives, isn't it? Um, so these are, his, these are his things. And after this, he's got teaching on right living and uh, how to kind of live, live a life pleasing to Christ. He's got teaching on how to put to death the, the old self. He's got teaching on um, how to live as a happy family uh, or a or Christ-honouring family. He's got all this stuff. But it will always come back to Christ is supreme and, uh, and we've been saved because of him. So I just want to hit that first section again and I want us to kind of pull out what are all the things that he's saying Christ is. So let me just read it again real real quick. The Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. So it's the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean um, as some different uh, splinter groups of Christianity or cults or or different uh, religions even that have imported Jesus in. A lot of them have said things like, oh, Jesus, here's God, then, then God made Jesus in the sense that he's the firstborn of all creation. He's, he's not really God, but he's better than human. He's somewhere in the middle. That's not what Paul's saying at all. We're using firstborn here a bit like, remember when we did Genesis and and talked about Jacob and Esau and and Jacob's like, I want the rights of being a firstborn. It's that sort of thing. It's like, I want to be, I want to have the inheritance of all creation. In Jesus' case, the inheritance. It's all for me. It's all for me. That's what he's saying. Firstborn in the sense that he's got all the rights, all the inheritance, all the authority and power. Uh, Not that he's the first created being. So, that's important. And you'll see his next line makes that impossible anyway, because he says, um, For in him all things were created. So he can't be created and have everything created through him. That's not possible. So all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, uh, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things have been created uh, through him and for him. Which I think is really interesting too. So we have you know in in John I marked this one let's see if my bookmark worked yes Um, Started John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God so that's Christ Christ is the word Um, and he was with God in the beginning through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made so that's John kind of flipping the idea as well and saying it both ways everything was made through him Nothing was made that wasn't made through him. Yeah, It's the same thing twice. And Paul's Paul's saying it too. There's nothing that has been made that wasn't made through Christ. But also, it's all been made for his pleasure. Everything was made for him, for him to enjoy, for the world to glorify him. If we think back to Genesis and we think of Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they're in relationship with God, everything's functioning and everything's good. This is before they eat the fruit and um, it's a great picture isn't it because they're honouring God by living their lives the way that he's designed them to they're naming the animals they're tending the garden they're chatting with God they're having this beautiful relationship and this is how it was meant to be with everyone worshipping God everyone honouring him and God enjoying us and enjoying our praise of him so that's where that is um, He's the head of the church. So it says, and he's the head of the body of the church. Um, what does that mean? Well, in one sense, in a very true sense, he's head of the universal church. All through history you've had Christians and you've had, uh, even before Christ, the Jews. They, they're all part of this big historic lineage that we call the universal church. And he's the head of it. It's all for him. It's the bride of Christ, isn't it? And we're part of that. We slot into that. In 2014, in Montmorency, this is a cell within the body of Christ. We are part of that. Um, So we could think Christ is the head of this big church, but he's also the head of this church. So in, in everything, when we think about what does church mean to us, it's not what does it mean for me, what can I get out of it. It's not how is it serving my needs. Um, and when we think about leadership, it's not, oh, David's in charge or the elders are in charge or, or or anything like that. And it's not, how can I kind of get what I want out of this? It's how can I glorify Christ? He's the head of the church. He's the one in charge. And everything we do here, everything we say, everything we sing, everything we teach, everything we pray should be focused back on Christ, um, not because we're going to kind of Forget, forget him or something because of it coming back to us. But it's just because he deserves it. He's the one in charge. This is his church. And if if some of us leave tomorrow, it'll still be his church. If a hundred new people came in and replaced us all, it'd still be his church. Because we don't make the church. He's he's the head of the church. It's about him. Um, it says he's the firstborn of the dead. Isn't that weird? Isn't that a weird phrase? It's like he's a zombie or something, but he's not. Firstborn of the dead, what does that mean? It means when he died on the cross and he was resurrected, he became the, the model, the archetype. He became the first to experience what we're all going to experience. Um, the Bible promises that there's life after death and for that to be possible, we all experience a resurrection, and Jesus got there first, but we all get to experience it too. So he's the firstborn; he's the first to come through life on earth and out the other side. And I think that's amazing. And Paul, in fact, says he often teaches that uh, in, a, in a in a way that I don't really understand. We have already died with Christ on the cross, so. You can think of that as a as a figurative thing or a metaphorical thing. I think there's an absolutely true spiritual element to it, where we died to our old lives, and we're born again into a new life. And it doesn't that new life doesn't happen when when we cark it here. It starts the moment we put our faith in Christ, and the moment we say, "Yep, Jesus, your Lord of Lord of my life." Our old self dies, and we can start living in this new self. And it's not always clear how that works. You know, In chapter 2 of Colossians, I guess I'll talk about this next week, um, Paul is at, at length to say, you know, you've got to put your old self to death. Maybe it's chapter 3. You've got to put your old self to death and you've got to take up this new life and it's this kind of active choice that we're making. But at the same time, he talks about how when we're baptised, we we die on the cross with Christ and we're raised with him into new life. So there's this kind of tension between the reality of living in a world that's broken and fallen and in these kind of bodies that are still somehow hooked into fallenness, yet we can start experiencing some of our some of our heavenly life now and that's a foretaste of where we're going to be, I don't know, what's the statistical lifespan in Australia? 80, what we're going to be, 90, 100, 110, I don't know, at some point after there when we we die. This section says that Christ is the fullness of God or it says that God was pleased for his fullness to dwell in him. And what does that mean? It means that somehow, and again, much too big for me to get my head around, and I, I just marvel at this, but somehow, in a human shell in a body not unlike my own, with arms and legs and blood and heart and stomach and toes and sinew and nerves and a brain, and all the limitations that come with that, the fullness of God was somehow able to inhabit that body, you know the God that is eternal, omnipotent omniscient um, the God that creates universes and life and all this somehow he managed to squeeze himself into this little body and it says he was he was pleased for that to happen and I think that's another thing for us to remember so what does this all boil down to it boils down to Christ is supreme and this is this is Paul's thing isn't it in this in this section it's just he wants to he wants to make exceptionally clear he's at pains to make clear that Christ is supreme over everything. As I was telling my brother last night um, about the section I've been talking on and he said, oh yeah, Colossians 1, that's where it's like the supremacy of Christ to the max. And so I told him I was going to say supremacy of Christ to the max in the middle of this sermon. So (laughs) there you go. But that's what it is, isn't it? It's just making it absolutely 100% unequivocally clear. Christ everything else Christ everything else that simple it's not complicated but at the same time it's incredibly deep um, and I think this then we've got to think well why, why is he saying all this what does this mean for us um, and we've got to start asking ourselves is this the Christ that I recognise in my life um, am I really really getting a hold of Christ is supreme or am I doing as I often do and many of us probably do in our lives am I treating Christ as a bit of a second class citizen um just kind of giving him some little tidbits from my life the crumbs like feeding the ducks at the pond just kind of tossing the crumbs and going there you go Christ that's for you I've got the best bits that's for me um and when we do that maybe we don't recognise we don't recognise who Christ is um I think back to 2002 when I, I started kind of taking on freelance design projects. So I'm, I'm a graphic designer or I have been a graphic designer by trade and I started taking on these kind of freelance projects and my first one, um, which was a little bit of a trial by fire because it came from a friend, which can always be a little bit awkward at times, and uh, he he just wanted me to do something real simple, just a little flyer for his small business. What do you reckon that takes? Half an hour? An hour? Something like that. This thing dragged on for weeks. I couldn't believe it because I'd I'd, I'd do a design and I'd send it to him and he'd come back with these notes like, can you shift the heading two pixels to the left? And if you don't know how big a pixel is, it is the smallest unit of measure on a computer screen. It'd be like saying, you've built me a house, but can you move it one millimetre to the left? It's that infinitesimal. And, and he'd say, oh, the green, maybe it could be a little bit greener or a little bit less green. Uh, can we have a border that's just here? And it was just painstaking, all these little changes that had come back. Anyway, so I, I was getting maybe a little bit frustrated with this. And so I said, look, I'll come around your house, we'll sit down, I'll bring my laptop you can watch over my shoulder and we'll just we'll just hammer it out we'll do it together, and we'll just get this thing done because I do not want to have another week of emails um, yeah essentially, and so I went round, and what i I didn't realize he would do is he had invited his girlfriend to come and be part of the creative process and what he said to me was um, i I like kind of you know." what you do or whatever um, but I just need to check it all with my girlfriend because she's um, she's got a good eye for colour or something like that and I thought what are you paying me for? If you don't trust me why are you hiring me? Why are you paying me? And I just thought man has, has he not really grasped or is he not really able to trust me as a designer? Is that, is that the issue in that he kind of goes well my girlfriend who's a Business studies student or something, I'll trust her opinion. But this guy, I don't really, I don't really trust him. I don't really believe that he's capable, or I don't really believe he's a he's a designer at heart, or whatever it is. There's a, there's a trust issue, and and it's actually contradictory because on the one hand he's saying I'll pay you to do this. I could pay someone else, but I'm choosing to pay you and hire you in this role. But I'm I'm not really gonna gonna use you in the way that you're supposed to be used and I think it's exactly the same when we approach Christ and we say I put my faith in you I want you to be Lord of my life but I don't really trust you I can't really let go of control Um, it's my life just like he was he was pretty precious about his small business it's my small business and, uh, and I'm not ready to kind of let anyone else mess with it and I think that's Completely, the heart behind my heart when I struggle with, you know, I think, oh, something's going on, I should pray about it. But there's that reluctance and that sense of, oh, will it really make a difference anyway? Or when I let my relationship with Christ slide, when I neglect it, I just don't take the time. Um, when I keep, you know, like I was saying before, you, you toss crumbs out when I keep the best of my time or the best of my energy or the best of my money or the best of my leisure time or whatever it is, when I kind of say, this is mine and God, you can have whatever's left, then I'm denying the supremacy of Christ. I'm just saying, you're probably not any better at running my life than I am. And frankly, I'd rather do it myself. So that's exactly where that first... Section is. It's Paul pointing out the supremacy of Christ, and as you'll see, these things just hit straight back into all different aspects of our lives. Um, The second uh, main point he's making is that we're reconciled to God through Christ. So he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled to you by Christ's physical body, through death, and to present you, whole, sorry, through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. I think we like that bit. I think we like when we hear that. We think, okay. So what does this say? We're reconciled through death. We are holy. We're without blemish. There's no accusations. We're free. We can do whatever we want. This is fantastic. And, and there is an absolute truth to that. We are free. And Paul will go on and he'll talk about all the rules and regulations we don't need to follow. That's what he gets into, into, into chapter 2. He says, you've heard about all this. Oh, cool. Thank you. <laughs> you've heard about all this, um, all these rules and regulations. People are telling you this is what you have to do. Otherwise, God won't love you, essentially. Um, it's not true. You're free. You can just relate to God. That's the full picture. And that's what he gets into here. And that's the bit we like. However, (coughs) success. Hey, there we go. Thank you. Um, However, he goes on and he says, if you continue in your faith, if, so already you've got a conditional thing there. It's not just carte blanche, do whatever you want. There's an if. Um, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. There's something really important that we need to understand here, something that was true to Paul and should be true to us. This is not just empty theology. This is not just a nice little neat statement of beliefs that we can kind of hang our hat on and go, okay, so I don't need to stress too much, I've got forgiveness, bang, tick the box, move on with life, and kind of, as long as I'm a, a nice, polite, um, kind sort of person, I've kind of checked the Christian box and I'm done. Um, Paul's not into that at all. Uh, he's not trying to give us something that will kind of allow us to put Christ in a little box, and then put that box on a shelf in our life and kind of go, I'll check in on that every Sunday morning and just kind of give it a little peek. Oh, yep, still a Christian, still following Christ. Good, back in your box, get on with life. That's not it at all. He describes himself as a servant of the gospel. Um, In fact, you could even very accurately translate that word to mean slave and he uses that same servant-slave word to describe Epiphras, his friend who planted the church. Um, there is no doubt that he wants more than that in fact if you put these two together he's really using the gospel as a lens and he's saying you need to focus your lives through this lens, everything you see in your life you must see through this lens of the gospel and through this lens of the supremacy of Christ and if you've lost sight of that, if that's not how you view the world around you then you're missing out and you're missing where Christ wants you to be um, <laughs> I don't know how many of you are familiar with the with the Grampian Ranges. Fantastic place. Got a Halls Gap, awesome mountain range. Not real huge, but it's where I spent a lot of childhood holidays. So I reckon for probably a decade, we were going there two or three times a year. We'd set up a camp in the local camping ground, caravan park, and we'd just do trail walks, mountain climby type stuff uh, every day, me and my family. And uh, there's awesome mountains up there. There's um, the Pinnacle, which is great fun. There's the Jaws of Death, which is actually really boring, but it's called the Jaws of Death, so you'd think it would be better. Um, There's the Elephant's Hide, which apparently is is just kind of like this, and it's all rock, and you just kind of walk your way up. My parents never let me do that one. And then there's my favourite, and this just kills them all by far, and it's called Hollow Mountain. And Hollow Mountain is... Uh, one of the longer walks, you get to the top and the whole kind of all the, this huge boulders so boulders being like half the size of this room or bigger and the wind is just over years and years and years and years has hollowed them all out, it's amazing so on the outside it looks like a solid boulder but you find a hole, you crawl inside and you can climb all through the inside of the boulder and then pop your head out the top and I love doing this this is just like there are photos of me from probably age eight to age 18, just popping my head out of little bits of this rock. And uh, one one year, much more recently, probably in my mid 20s, um, we went back as a family. Let's go back. Let's see how much it's changed. And uh, went up Apollo Mountain, and I thought, oh, fantastic! What a great chance to kind of do all this climbing stuff again. And I, I climbed up through a rock and I climbed out and I moved out onto a ledge and I thought, I, I know I can just go around. And so I just shuffled a little bit to the side and I suddenly realised there's a probably about a 30 foot drop behind me onto just flat stone. So there's no give there's no bushes, there's no trees, it's just stone. And I'm on a... They're very smooth. You can imagine after all this wind just rubbing against them all the time, exceptionally smooth rocks, and I'm on kind of the outside of one, so I'm kind of like this, and I've got my fingers hooked in the hole that I came out of, and I've got my feet on probably about that much, and I've realised I can't quite reach the next hole, but I can't quite go backwards either, so I'm just sitting there hugging the rock like this, and and I was... Like, my family were back down eating lunch and part of me was thinking, I just don't want to call out because I know I'm going to get this sort of, you're so irresponsible, Brent. What are you doing? <laughs> and I just know I'm going to get that, that sort of response. I'm not interested, but I'm also not interested in dying. So I'm trying to weigh up, what do I do? What do I do? Um, I just feel totally exposed and it's not cool. I, I don't think... Uh, no, that's not I was going to say I don't think I've ever been more scared. I probably have, but I was pretty scared. Um, and so I'm there, and eventually, somehow, I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I just I let go and I shuffled and I grabbed the other side, and I, my heart's just going <laughs> like this. But the worst bit was, the worst bit was, I get round, I climb up, and there's my brother just standing. He's just walked round the top. There's, hi Brent, and I'm like. But you didn't see that I was, oh, never mind. And it was just this, it was a real sense actually of like, oh, I thought I'd taken this big risk. Um, But the point is, you know, sometimes we just gotta press in. I was absolutely hugging that rock for dear life, quite literally. um, And I just had to press my whole body right up against it because it was smooth up, it was smooth this way, I had this much of a handhold and this much of a foothold And you just had to press in. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you know, this whole if section, he's saying, you've got to press in. You've got to press into your faith. You've got to take it every day and just make it a priority. You've got to own it for yourself. You've got to make it more than just a nice, neat theology. You've got to recognise Christ's supremacy. You've got to press in. You've got to become a servant of the gospel. And you got to, you know, he uses the word slave. I think they don't like to translate it that way anymore because we kind of imagine Jesus with a whip and he's like beating us or something. It's not that at all. But it's that slave relationship where it's just like, I will do whatever you say. I will go wherever you want. I'm quite happy to hand the reins over to you. Um, And that's exactly how we can be. And in that context... In that context of really throwing ourselves on, the, on on Christ and throwing ourselves on the gospel, he says that's that's part and part, of, part and parcel with without a blemish, seen as holy, without accusation. You know, it's a whole life package, and we've got to embrace the whole thing. It's got to be more than just a neat little theology that makes us feel good. So Paul writes earlier. Back in uh, verse 12, 112, he describes the kingdom of God as the kingdom of light, and he says, "You've been made part of the kingdom of light, been brought out of the kingdom of darkness, made part of the kingdom of light." Um, and he's saying, "We're set free. This whole section is saying, we're set free, but if Paul's our example, if we say he's the sort of he's the sort of Christian we want to be, then we're set free not to just sit on our hands and kind of live a life for, for me." Um, we're set free to live in Christ work alongside him We're, we're set free to share our faith with people and it's not that sharing our faith is the job we have to do to make God happy it's the expression of joy because we're experiencing something amazing in our lives and we want other people to get in on the action as well and we just want to tell people God's amazing, Jesus is amazing have you heard about this? It's an expression. It's an outflowing of our heart. Um, we're set free to recognise Christ's supremacy in our decisions. You know, where will I? Where will I go to uni? Or where will I work? Or where will I go to school? Um, what sort of friends will I have? And I don't mean just finding the nicest kids around. I mean, who can I? Who can I love with the love of Christ? Um, you know, how will I respond to my boss who's being awful? Um, how will I respond to my neighbour who's being incredibly unreasonable? Um, how will I live with my housemates you know, when they just do things that tick me off? Um, there's all this sort of stuff. It's how will I spend my money? Um, is it mainly me or am I, actually, am I actually glorifying God through the way that I spend it? How will I spend my leisure time? Do I actively choose to make time with God a part of my life or do I kind of say I'd, I'd just rather watch TV? Um, in family relationships in our friendships even in our thoughts how do we spend our time thinking and again I don't mean just cracking down on stuff you shouldn't think about I mean are you actively just enjoying thinking about God just kind of going yeah this is amazing look at this world around us what a great blessing it is You know, thank you Jesus for today how are we involving Christ how are we recognising the supremacy of Christ the amazingness of God in our day to day life um you know Hebrews twelve kind of verse two onwards says we 've got to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. you know, fix our eyes on jesus he 's the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me pray Lord Jesus, we just thank you that uh, we really can have this amazing adventure of a life with you. Um, we thank you that you call us to so much more than just a nice, quiet, polite life. That you call us to an exploration of the gospel. You call us to um, adventuring in the sense that we just throw our lives completely in your hands and live devoted to you, no matter what that might mean. Um, Thank you that you really have reconciled us with God and we are free and blame free, accusation free, blemish free. uh, And we don't need to stress about, oh, am am I going to be good enough? Because you've made us good enough. That's been your work. And uh, we just thank you for that. And we pray that, as we go about our lives through this week and next week and onwards, that you'll keep prompting us and putting on our hearts how we're involving you in our day-to-day lives, how we doing everything to your glory. Pray that in the decisions we make and the conversations we have, in the ways we choose to spend our time, in the attitudes we take to the things we do, we'd be thinking, Christ, 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 Christ. Um, Yeah, we just want to glorify you and love you and worship you with every part of our being. Lord, we thank you. Amen.